Hi, I'm Mike Kozer, and welcome to the Lost Ballparks Podcast. Join us now for another Brooklyn ball game here at Ebbets Field, Brooklyn, USA. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. Hello, everyone, with Bob Prince and Nellie King. This is Gene Osborne speaking to you from Forbes Field in Pittsburgh. Well, friends, here we are back at the Polo Grounds in New York City. We're underway in the first of a twilight doubleheader at Tiger Stadium. And it's baseball here at Crosby Field. Just the start of things. So pull up a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shaper or two throughout the evening. Beloved Pittsburgh Pirate player and broadcaster Steve Blass won 104 games for the Pirates between 1964 and 1974. He was an all-star pitcher and a key member of the 1971 world champion Pittsburgh Pirates, finishing second in the World Series MVP voting to Roberto Clemente. Blass joined the Pirates broadcast team in 1983 and retired from that position in 2019, spending... 60 years with a pirate organization. Naturally, he's got a few stories to tell, and I think we've got him on right now. Yep, there we are. Yeah, good shape. Perfect. How are you? I'm doing good. So you saw your first Major League Baseball game, I think, in 1952 at Yankee Stadium. Here you are, a 10-year-old, about to walk into a ballpark that Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig called home. Take me through that experience. What was that like? Uh, living up in Connecticut, we were 100 miles away from New York City, so we drove halfway. And then we got on a train, and uh, I had never been really too far out of Falls Village, Connecticut. So we get off at 125th Street, and it's crazy. It's a city. And, and uh, we walked in, and I walked uh, through that, uh, I guess, what do you call it when you come out from uh, the, the concourse? Anyway, my first look, I look at the surface under those lights. It looked like a bed of emeralds. And I just, just stunned. And it was, it was the Cleveland Indians. That was my team. Uh, I was actually kept a, a scrapbook in Connecticut of every game they played in 1954 when I was 12. That was my team. And it was tough to get information back in that those days from from, uh, from Connecticut to Cleveland. Anyway, uh, I was just dazzled by the by the ballpark, and uh, I just sat there. But the next time. I was a little more comfortable. We went in the afternoon, and the Indians were playing. And I ran down to the railing, and uh, I didn't know the numbers or anything. They didn't have the names on them. But one of the Indians was there, and he actually came over and signed my autograph. I'll never forget it. It was Hank Majeski. He was a reserve infielder for the Indians in 1952. And what an experience must have been like to go from, you know, black and white television, if you were lucky to have one, or just the radio broadcast. It's Yankee baseball time again. And as you said, just to step into the concourse. And, and you go through the little, you know, the the runway out, uh, out where you can see the field. First of all, the, the lights, you know, <laughs> the lights were like the middle of the day, and it was just so perfect and pristine and green. It was just just uh, fabulous. Well, now, Steve, to this day. One of my favorite things to do when I'm in Pittsburgh is to drive through the Fort Pitt Tunnel where that view of the downtown skyline, I oh, mean, yeah. it, it just... It explodes on you. Yeah, it hits you right in the face as you emerge from this darkness. What was it like driving through that tunnel? Let me take you back. You're an 18-year-old on your way to try out for the Pirates at Forbes Field, and I think you would have come through the Fort Pitt Tunnel, right? Absolutely. I, I flew out to Pittsburgh with my dad and my high school coach. To Pittsburgh, where the Monongahela and the Allegheny River join. And I'd never flown before. We took off from Bradley Field in Hartford, Connecticut, and uh, we took off and the plane banked to the left, and I leaned to the right, hoping I could help balance this thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, I'd never been out of Fallsville. <laughs> I, I really hadn't. And so uh, we, we get there, and, and 
we come down the hill, Green Tree Hill goes right down into the Fort Pitt Tunnel, and hell, I'd never been in a tunnel before, so that was kind of exciting. So I'm taking all that, and bang, all of a sudden there's a city. We didn't come in through a, a little town or anything. <laughs> there's, you know, there's a big hill there, and, and they cut it out, and you go from driving on this um, four-lane highway, and all of a sudden you go into a tunnel, you come out of the darkness, bang, there's a city. It took my breath away. Yeah, and speaking of taking your breath away, I imagine that happened again when you get to the ballpark and you you show up before I think the Pirates um, were ready to take batting practice, and there's a they even have a uniform waiting for you. Yeah, the whole thing was a, a, a blur. But I remember walking in. I'd not been in a major league ballpark, and I don't remember a lot of the details about going in there. The only thing I remember was the tryout, and I threw down the right field line to Bob Oldis was the third string catcher. There was Hal Smith and Smokey Burgess and Bob Oldis. Years later, at a fantasy camp reunion for the 60 championship team, I went up to Bob Oldis and I said, you know, I haven't seen you since I was 18. And uh, I said, do you remember me warming up down the right field line when I came in to try? He said, hell no. <laughs> I thought he was going to say, yeah, well, yeah, sure. That was the beginning for you. Da, da, da. I said, hell no. <laughs> I remember it. Yeah. But uh, I remember sitting in the stands and uh, I remember a Cubs doubleheader. Broncos won the front game three to two, and that's now history. Sitting in the stands uh, during the fifth inning of the second game of the doubleheader, the beer is going down the steps in between the aisles. You know, you could bring beer into the ballpark. I tell people this all the time, and they they think I'm crazy. They were never able to sell beer at Forbes Field. People had to bring it in in coolers. Yeah, yeah, be a guy on each end of the cooler, yeah. And back in then, and you could also uh, walk out onto the field after the last out of a game. And uh, that was pretty neat stuff. Well, yeah, it's pretty incredible, honestly, when you think about it. I mean, here you are, 18 years old. You're watching what would become the 1960 World Champions. And that 23-year-old second baseman named Mazeroski and that 25-year-old right fielder named Clemente would eventually become your teammates. It's, it's pretty wild, yeah. And and Bob Friend would be my first roommate in the big leagues. That whole group that later on helped me go from being a ball player to a major leaguer. I, I'll never forget that. But that, yeah, that I get home after my little short season after signing. I'm working for a, a carpentry outfit, and uh, I'm listening to the game on radio in the little woodworking area. Well, a little while ago, when we mentioned uh, that this one, uh, in typical fashion, was going right to the wire, little did we know. Mark Dittbar throws. Here's a swing and a high. with a pretty good group. They're in the World Series. And then they won it. But I still remember the 1960 World Champion sign on what I guess would be the right field stands. Even as they were tearing down the ballpark, that that was an image. Oh, yeah. That's all part of the Murtaugh story, too. We couldn't get him in the Hall of Fame. He managed two World Series winners against unbelievable odds. The Yankees, uh, the mighty Yankees, who were supposed to just roll over the Pirates in 60. And the Orioles were supposed to stampede us in 1971 there were people saying they'd win the series in three games it wouldn't even take four four 20 game winners hall of famers robinsons they had won 16 straight games before we won game three so uh, we won murtaugh to get in just an aside yeah no i think you know i think you should so may 7th 1964 you get called up to the big leagues you and your wife make the drive in from uh columbus ohio to pittsburgh yeah and i'm assuming that you would be were you driving your 63 pontiac catalina pontiac's the car that takes the wobbles out of cobbles and the ripples out of ruts 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, uh, uh, you know, I, I bought a Pontiac because I was an Indians fan, and there was a chief Pontiac that I used to read about. So my first car had to be a Pontiac. So you check in yeah. at a hotel. We left Columbus. We stopped to get breakfast, and we're both so excited that uh, Karen had a, a partial plate that he actually was sick to her stomach, and, <laughs> and she, she threw the, that plate up. So that was a little excitement we didn't need on the way in. But <laughs> when we get in, we check into the hotel, and I walk over to the ballpark, and it's raining. Walk in, the clubhouse manager has gone through this before, obviously. I walk in dazzled, and he said, come here, and he took me over. And there was my locker with my name, Steve Blass, right beside the Iron City sign. <laughs> there was an Iron City sponsored the players' names over their lockers. And uh, he said, aren't you going to put your uniform on and go out on the field? I said, well, who? It's, it's raining cats and dogs. And he reached in, and he said, listen. He said, look at You get that one wet. Look at there's three more uniforms just like it in here. That's one of the reasons they call it the big leagues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I walked out in the rain. I didn't care. I had two, two more uniforms just like it. It was the big leagues. What do you remember about Forbes Field? I mean, at that point, it probably is hard to, to really sit back and soak it up and take it all in. You're probably just in shock, um, yeah. you know, that you're there. But what do you remember about that, that moment about walking out there and looking up into the stands and looking out into Shenley Park? Yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it was overwhelming. I, I put my uniform, I was by myself, it was the middle of the day, it was raining, I just stood there and just, just got so, and by the way, in Forbes Field, both clubhouses were side by side up underneath, and you had to take a dirt winding path from the clubhouse in the dark, uh, barely lit, down into the first base dugout, the home dugout. So that was interesting. I said, where the hell am I going? <laughs> <laughs> and God, we used to see rats in there, and God, they were they were big as woodchucks. But anyway, that was the interesting part about that because visitors had to come down that same path. And if you were a pitcher on the other team, and say you got knocked out early, you not only got beat up by the pirates, but then you had to walk through our dugout to get back up into your clubhouse after you got uh, removed from the ball game. So it's like walking the gauntlet after they beat you up. We're sitting in there watching some guy who's just got his face ripped off and he's he's got he's not only got to go to his clubhouse in shame but he's got to walk through our dugout to get there i'm sure you guys were very quiet and never said anything you know i mean because there's some tension sometimes especially back in the 50s and 60s when guys weren't afraid to throw inside you know and then Uh, yeah well bob friend when he got traded over to the mets got beat up out of a game harry walker's a manager they got in a fight bob was taken out of the ball game walked across he and harry got into it Back to May 1964, a couple days after you called up, it's May 10th now, 1964, and the Milwaukee Braves are in town to play the Pirates at Forbes Field, and you get the call, and included in the first group of big league hitters that you have to face, Hank Aaron and Eddie Matthews, right? I mean, so here are people that you grew up watching, and you're now... Yeah, I think I got, still got their bubblegum cards in my pocket. Right, and now, and now you're facing them, and obviously there's nerves, but you've got to put those nerves aside for a minute and figure out how you're going to get Hank Aaron out. Well, yeah, I pitched five five scoreless innings, and to your point of going out there and seeing only me and the laundry man know how nervous I was. <laughs> <laughs> it was so exciting, and I'm sure you, you've heard the backstory that when we got there, we didn't have an apartment, so we stayed with Tommy Sisk and his wife. He started that game, got knocked out in the first. I had driven in from his apartment with him. After the game, I was elated. He was devastated. He got knocked out in the first inning, and not only got knocked out in the first inning, but he was called into the manager's office and was told he was sent back to Columbus, so I got to ride home with him in his car to his apartment that he graciously let us stay in, and I'm I'm on top of the world, and he's on the bottom of the world, and we drive home to face our wives. Kind of an awkward 
trip back. Boy, yeah, because you walk in and you tell your wife, hey, I mean, like you're excited to share the news with her and he has to tell the news of going back to Columbus to his wife. Yeah, yeah, and uh, fortunately, we'd come to, up through the minor leagues together. We had a lot of respect for uh, each other. He didn't stay down in Columbus very long, but it was a kind of an interesting, awkward uh, arrival back at the house, for sure. Yeah, sure. A few days later, your big first big league start was May 18th, 1964, at Dodger Stadium, and you find out that you're facing Don Drysdale. Do you remember what... That's all, yeah. You, yeah, exactly, no big deal. Do you remember what Bill Mazeroski said to you before the game? Yeah, he walked up behind me and he pointed down to Drysdale, uh, uh, warming up, and he uh, looked at me and said, uh, hey, pitch a shutout and we'll play for a tie. <laughs> okay, well, how about that game, though, right? Yeah, I mean, a, a complete game, first major league start, Dodger Stadium, Don Drysdale. You know, before the game started, they had the big jumbotron out in center field at Dodger Stadium. I said, uh, introducing tonight's starting pitchers, Don Drysdale, leading the league in strikeouts, ERA, and for the Pirates, Steve Glass. <laughs> kind of a, an afterthought up on the Jumbotron. Yeah, but then you win, and you must have thought, well, man, this isn't as hard as I thought it would be. Well, I didn't think that. I was elated not only by winning, but I got in a post-game interview with Ben Scully's partner, Jerry Doggett, my first major league interview. Oh, right, yeah. And Jerry, yeah, Jerry had worked uh, on broadcast all the way back at Ebbets Field. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, well, Steve, thanks for the time. He says, I know you're getting ready to uh, to make your first call. Where's it going to be? And I said, it's going to be my parents in Connecticut. And do you, so you did call them after the game? Yeah, I did call them. I don't know what time it was, you know, getting showered and cleaned up and everything. And then my second one was to my high school coach, Ed Kirby. Wow. So, pretty neat ride down to Houston on the plane that night. Yeah, I bet. And, you know, and again, you're 22 years old, and like we talk about, you're facing guys that you grew up having their bubblegum cards. Yeah, and, 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 I did have their cards. And Willie Mays is one of those guys. What was it like the first time you faced Willie Mays? Well, there's a story there, too. I'm sure you're obviously aware of it, but pitch against him in, in San Francisco, and he comes up to bat, and I think, here's another guy. I think I got his bubblegum card. I said, just let me keep it in the ballpark. Whatever he does, let me keep it in the ballpark. So I throw him a pitch, and he grounds, grounds it wide at first base. And I'm so elated that he did keep it in the ballpark. I'm late by a step to get over to first base. Mays is safe, and we go on to win the ball game. I don't remember the score. But the next day, one of the coaches says that uh, Murtaugh would like to see it in his office. And I said, oh, well, yeah, I have a rookie. Uh, just beat the Giants. Willie Mays probably going to be a little, kind of a father father-son chat so I walked in and yeah sure enough put his arm around me he said good job I said yeah yeah you're right Danny yeah feel good about it and he said uh, that maze can really get down the line can't he I said yeah sure can he said it'll cost you a hundred dollars to beat him there next time and uh, don't spell my name wrong on the check please my first major league life lesson <laughs> you're so excited to get him you know and keep him in the ballpark and then no yeah, yeah okay oh well, yeah I gotta cover first base well didn't get over there quite in time what a great story by the way you used to walk from uh, hotels to whatever ballpark you were playing in. So like in Philadelphia, the Pirates would stay at the Warwick Hotel. You would walk over to Connie Mack Stadium, which I think is like five or six miles away. Yeah, it is. And I was rooming with Bob Friend, who's a starter. I had really not established myself all that much as a starter. So uh, even though I started a couple of games, I was still spending a lot of time in the bullpen. So he, you know, he had four days in between starts. Yeah, he liked to walk to the ballpark. That's how he got, his, got some exercise in. And so he said, come on, kid, we're walking the ballpark. I didn't know. We walked down Broad Street in, in, in Philadelphia. had to stop twice for sandwiches. <laughs> and I, he's going he's to sit in the dugout lounging around. I'm going to be maybe in the ball game. So I was exhausted. We did that in Philadelphia. You would stay at the Chase Park Plaza Hotel in St. Louis and walk to Sportsman's Park. 
Yeah, through a tough neighborhood, so we took a couple singles with us in case somebody wanted some money. Yeah, here. <laughs> you don't want to say no uh, for a lot of reasons. <laughs> it was a very tough neighborhood. I don't know where else we did it. Uh, wherever he could, uh, he would he would drag me along. What ballpark, by the way, aside from Forbes Field, did you enjoy playing in the most? Well, uh, Dodger Stadium. It's a mecca for pitching. You know, Colfax is out there and Drysdale's out there and won my first game. Uh, I like pitching in Forbes. You know, it's 457 to center field, 436 to left center, 406 another part of left center. I mean, it's a barn. Right. Uh, right field was 300, but it had a big screen in front of it. So uh, that was fun, except for pitching against Willie McCovey, who hit one over the 457 sign and wound up... Uh, disrupting a, a, a foursome on the Shenley Park golf course. And I have a friend to this day who says that every Monday night at 10 o'clock up in the eastern sky, he can still see that ball orbiting. <laughs> was that, he insisted on that. Was Willie McCovey just one of the most giant baseball players you ever faced? I mean, Yeah, right after Frank Howard. Oh, right. Played on that Dodgers t- team that first that first I could hear the air move when he swung the bat <laughs> from the pitcher's mound. He's a monster. He and McCovey are the two biggest people ever you, faced. You probably were thinking, okay, don't let them hit me. Like, just don't don't hit the ball back up the box. Well, I'm thinking, McCovey, pull the ball. I'm going to pitch you inside. I don't care if, <laughs> I don't right. care if it goes into, into the San Francisco Bay. Hey, so Steve, I'm watching, uh, I don't know if you saw it, on MLB Network, um, they were showing Game 7 of the 1971 World Series. And the poor old Baltimore Orioles manager, Earl Weaver, is down to his last 20-game winner, Mike Cuellar. The Pittsburgh Pirates are going with a pitcher they think has been their best the last two months of the season, a right-hander, Steve Blass. And I'm telling... It was on yesterday, I think. Somebody I, said it was I, on yesterday. You were absolutely dealing. I don't know if it was the third or fourth inning, but you struck out Frank Robinson on one of the best curveballs I've ever seen thrown. This is an important pitch for Blass. This is a slow curve, and he uses it as a changeup. He had Robinson way off his timing. Now, if he gets this pitch over, along with a fastball he has in a slider, he's going to be tough. It oh, was the old slow, uh, the old slow curve. Sangi used to call it the old Flip Wilson. Yeah. Yeah, he looked like he had no idea what was going on. Frank Robbins, like he just looked so befuddled as he left the box. Yeah, that was, uh, I, I love that pitch. I threw that pitch all World Series to, to Boog Powell, set it up, but I, I got Boog Powell, I think he was 0 for 8. That was one of my favorite pitches, just, it was an unbelievably slow curve. I had a regular curve, and then that old dead fish that, that I threw, and it was a very effective pitch, and uh, I had to try something against Frank Robinson, because in game three, I had thrown him a slider, and he hit it and knocked some bricks out of uh, Three River Stadium. It's a high drive, deep left, it is going to be a Frank Robinson home run into the second deck in left field. But that's the only run they got. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I remember that pitch very, very well. Well, that World Series, you pitched two absolutely critical complete games. Game three at Three River Stadium. And he pitched a magnificent three-hitter today. And then there was such a cool moment after the game. You look up into the stands trying to make eye contact with your family. You see your dad, and you're trying to get him to come down to the field as you're getting ready to be interviewed. All right, let's go down to Tony Kubek. Thank you, sir. With me down here, Steve Blass, today's winning pitcher, and Mr. Blass. Mr. Blass, you've been crawling all over your son. This is quite a thing for him, isn't it? Oh, I guess so. Boy, this is something I... Oh, I can't think of boy. This is great. 
I'm going to talk to your boy right now. Steve, I, I'll tell you, I haven't seen many stronger pitching performances in recent years. You were strong at the end of this ball game too. Well, yeah, but all the adrenaline you got going pitching a World Series, when, when Brooks Robinson says he gets emotional about this thing, and he's played it so many times, you can imagine how I feel this being the first time. And then you pitch and win Game 7 of the 1971 World Series at Baltimore's Memorial Stadium. He pitched a three-hitter at Pittsburgh to beat the Orioles. He's pitched a four-hitter so far today, and he's leading 2-1. to one. There's a drive up the middle. Hernandez in back of the bag. He's got him, Jackie Hernandez. Look at Glass. Glass has pitched the Pirates to the World Championship. And then you get on the plane back to Pittsburgh. Roberto Clemente steps out into the aisle, comes up to your seat, and calls you out into the aisle. And what happens next? And he said, Glass, come here. Let me embrace you. And I gave him a hug. We were hugging each other. I didn't say a word. I just held on. All I did was hold on. And I can I can see that moment right now. Uh, I did tell him the following spring training, you know, you, you were the MVP. You got the car up in New York. And I, I'm, I'm good with that. But, you know, I should have at least got the tires. He said something to me in Spanish that I don't want to repeat. <laughs> so we are on terms that were that good. I could do that. But, uh, you know, just just watching him show the whole baseball world what we'd seen for 20 years in Pittsburgh, that was just, it was just fabulous. But, you know, those Orioles, by the time we did come to Game 3, they had won 16 in a row through the end of the regular season, sweeping their playoffs and beating us in the first two. So they were on a roll, 420-game winners, uh, Hall of Famers uh, in the lineup. I mean, and Danny Murtaugh, in the little boxes that we eventually got our World Series rings, put a quotation, there was a quotation stamped in every box, quote, you haven't seen the real Pirates yet. Wow. That's what he said after Game 2. After Game 6, when Frank Robinson slid across the plate, prompting a Game 7, I was sitting next to him in the dugout. He tapped me on the shoulder and said, Tag, you're it. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about stepping up to the plate. What an amazing moment for you in the 1971 World Series and then followed it up in 1972. The Major League's cream of the crop gather in Atlanta, Georgia for some Southern hospitality and the 1972 All-Star Game. You're selected along with fellow teammates, uh, obviously Clemente, Willie Stargell, Al Oliver, Manny Sanguian. The night before the All-Star Game, you and your wife are invited out to dinner by who? By Clemente. Uh, Roberto Clemente came, another airplane story, came up in the airplane on the way down to Atlanta. He said, would you and Karen be interested in joining Vera and I for dinner tonight? Yeah, yeah, uh, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think I'll hesitate here. So that was kind of a neat thing, too, that that happened. Yeah, the other neat thing that happened in the All-Star Game was uh, walking into that clubhouse for the National League All-Star Team. I mean, what an array of... Uh, Great baseball players. There's Mays over there. There's Aaron. There's Seaver, Carlton, all these guys. Bob Gibson. It's just fabulous. I don't know if it gets better or easier a second time because I didn't go back. And I sat down in my lockers next to Johnny Bench. And, you know, we respected each other. There was nothing, none of this fraternizing stuff that goes on now. I said, hey, John. He said, Steve. He said, by the way, he said, uh, I understand you're pitching the third inning because you'll know, orchestrate some of that. And I said, yeah. I said, well, what kind of signs you want to use? You know, like, one finger's a fastball, two's a curve, three's a slider. What kind of signs you want to use? I said, well, John, you know, uh, every time I face you, you seem to know what's, what's coming. So why don't we just wing it? We both had a good laugh. You pitched a great third inning and nobody saw it. It wasn't great. You got out of the inning and and nobody saw it. Nobody saw it because, uh, yeah, NBC had a glitch or something. My parents called later and said, did you ever get in the game? I said, yeah. 
trust me, uh, I had the bases loaded and the line drive by Tony Oliva or somebody got me out of it with a double play. I had already given up a run. But uh, yeah, there was some kind of technical difficulty. I think it was NBC that uh, had a problem. Unbelievable. So, a lot of people don't realize I pitched in an all-star game. Your all-star sure moment and they don't, even, they don't even catch it on TV. Unbelievable. Speaking of bench, you faced the big red machine of the 1972 National League Championship Series, both at Riverfront and then, of course, Three River Stadium when they were in their prime. I can't imagine as a pitcher waking up in the morning realizing I'm going to, okay, so let's see, who do I have to face today? Let's uh, Johnny Bench, Tony <laughs> Perez, Pete Rose, George Foster, Morgan, Concepcion. And, and by the way, you won game one. Well, I did, and a precursor to that was the fact that I had one chance to win my 20th game in uh, 72. I hadn't pitched uh, against them in 70. Pitched against the Mets, I got knocked out in the first inning, literally. Uh, I think it was Milner hit a ball off my elbow. I thought it broke my elbow. And those kind of injuries, if you get hit on the bone, it's either broke or it's going to be okay. If you get hit on the tissue, you're not going to pitch for a while because it's going to be bruised. Luckily, the x-rays showed that it wasn't broken. So I start that game and uh, Joe Morgan, I, I think second, first or second batter, hits, hits a fastball down and away, pulls it for a home run. Might have been the last fastball they saw all day long. And that's the only run they got through. I think I pitched eight innings, eight and third, something like that. And uh, I, I got my education real quick. They are not going to get any more fastballs to hit. I remember Pete Rose hollering at me, saying a lot of things about eat a steak, you know, throw like a man, that kind of stuff, uh, with the appropriate language, of course. And something maybe you wouldn't have been able to or wouldn't have thought to do as a younger player, right? But with now with a little right, bit of experience. Yeah, I've been, been around a while, knowing you have to make adjustments in certain situations, so. And, and Sangian was a, a right on that, too. Manny and I, I mean, we fought together. Uh, there were times I'd start to wind up before he even put his fingers down. We both knew what was coming. That was a great game. And then in the fifth game, I pitched well. I got taken out in, the, I think, the seventh inning. I gave up a, a home run, and then Pete Rose bounced a ball off the turf over Willie Stargell's head. So I only gave up two runs in seven and a third or something like that. Against that team. Speaking of Pete Rose, only two players in history struck him out three times in one game, and you were one of them. Yeah, and I remind him of that every time I see him. And then he'll go into a litany of all the uh, times he got hits off me and name the pitches, name the date and time of day. I mean, he never forgot anything. But uh, yeah, I I got him. uh, And, uh, you know, Maury Wills was kind of a part of that story, too, because Maury was a very good student of the game. And after the first strikeout, he would come over and say, you know, I'm looking at his stance. It looks like he might be setting up to try to thinking you're going to pitch inside and figure out and guess along with me. So Maury Wills was a part of that three strikeout story, too. One last question I was going to ask you about. In 1969, the Expos began play at Jerry Park in Montreal. Did you make it that you were there? I mean, you got to play at at Jerry Park, right? Crazy Park. You know, we had to call time at a certain time in the first or second inning because the sun would going down and back of the shortstop. And the first baseman couldn't see throws coming across. So they, they would delay it for 15 minutes or 10 minutes, whatever it took. And, of course, there was a swimming pool beyond right field. And I, oh, be- yeah. I yeah. believe Willie, that... Willie Stargell hit a ball in there. Yeah, I was going to say, well, first of all, Willie Stargell hit balls farther than probably just about anybody in baseball history. And uh, I'm sure he, he parked more than one into that pool. Did you ever see anyone hit a ball as hard as Willie Stargell? What was it like to play with him? Oh, it was, you know, I came up through some of the minor leagues with him and played in the Dominican Republic with him. So I knew about Willie Starts. I knew about his power, but I also knew about things that people don't talk about a lot, that he had a gun for an arm when he first came up. And you got to consider Forbes Field was 365 down the left line. And he would make it interesting for guys trying to stretch a single into a double. He had an absolute gun. 
But uh, he hit those two balls in L.A. One went into the parking lot and destroyed a Chevy, I think, over the right field bullpen. Just enormous, enormous power. Here you've got Stargell, you've got Mazeroski, you've got Clemente. And I, you talk, by the yeah, way, in I'm, your... I'm, I'm, I'm pitching in front of three Hall of Famers. I got Willie at first, Maz at second, Clemente in right field. So I'm saying to myself, here, I'm going to I'm gonna pitch you inside, you left-hand batters. And uh, you can hit the ball in that direction. I'll go get a sandwich. By the time I get back, you'll be out with those guys. They're Hall of Famers. You're not going to do any business on that side. Well, what was it like being... I mean, because you, you talk in your book a lot about being mentored by those guys and how much yeah. that meant to you in your career. Absolutely. You know, even the guys that weren't regulars, the Jerry Lynches and guys like Dick Grote, all those guys uh, helped me go from being a ball player to a major leaguer. You know, the responsibilities you have to your city and your organization, your teammates, your town, where to go, where not to go, uh, charities to get involved with, being a good citizen. Those guys helped me do that. I couldn't have got into college, but I went to University of Baseball and those guys were my professors. And I'll never forget them because of that. Steve Blass. Really, really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for joining us uh, on the Lost Ballparks podcast. It's just been fun reminiscing with you about um, your great career and uh, playing at Forbes Field and some of these other ballparks. All right, Mike, enjoy the visit. Thanks so much. His life story really is so fascinating. I encourage you to check out Steve Blass's book. You can pick it up on Amazon. It's called A Pirate for Life. It's a great read. And really, when you think about it, that guy played with some of the all-time legends, Roberto Clemente, Willie Stargell. And then in the 1971 World Series, he pitched to Brooks Robinson and Frank Robinson. And again, after 60 years with the Pittsburgh Pirates organization, he's got a lot to share. Special thanks to Robbie Itzmakowski for making this interview happen. I appreciate you, Robbie. Thanks for your help with this. Also, thanks to our Lost Ballparks producers, Mike Dunn, Briggs Buckingham, Michael Orman, Xavier Guerra, and Manny Zaflakis. Have a great rest of your week, and we'll talk again next Wednesday for the next episode of the Lost Ballparks podcast.